Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Not far on the heels of Betty White's death, we learned of the death of one of my all-time favorite musicians, Meatloaf. Meatloaf is his name. <laughs> Most people, I think, know Meatloaf. God, where do I start? I, I didn't. I didn't know about Meatloaf uh, until I was in high school. Actually, I had a good friend who I met at music camp. <laughs> I went to a. I think I was a. It was between my freshman and sophomore year. I went to a band camp at a local university, and my roommate uh, was a big fan of. A lot of different styles, and so we had a lot of fun going back and forth and talking about our favorite musicians, and one thing that he says is, oh, Meatloaf, and I said, what are you talking about? He says, oh, God, there's a new album out now, Bad Out of Hell 2, have you heard it? (laughs) And I had seen the posters, and I'd been curious about it, and of course, the song, uh, I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That, was playing nonstop on the radio Mm -hmm. at that time, and I put all these three things together and said, oh, he did that song. And he says, you got to listen to this album. It's amazing. I went out and I bought the album on his recommendation as soon as I got back from band camp and was blown away. The style of music on there was just unlike, I mean, of course, you know, as you grow up and you listen to pop music, you hear some of these older songs. And so, you know, I guess I'd heard some of these songs before, but I never really heard so much of it and, w- w- and said, gosh, this, this is a style. This is a very big, bombastic operatic rock mm-hmm. and it really spoke to me i just love the boldness and the audacity of it and the over-the-top aspect to the music it just it just sung and i loved it and uh, i went and found his earlier album since that was part two i went back to find part one found out the paradise on the dashboard light came from that mm-hmm. so i got to listening to that and i just went through pretty much a whole year probably of discovering meatloaf and his songwriter buddy, Jim Steinman, who wrote most of his songs and wrote lots of similar style songs for other musicians as well, many of which were big top hits. Turn around, bright eyes. He wrote that? <laughs> oh, God, yes. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. No Original idea. Sin for Daylor Dane. J- Jim Steinman, his songwriting buddy, wrote this. And, gotcha. You know, Meatloaf and Jim were almost inseparable, really, from a from a creative standpoint. Jim wrote most of his most popular songs. Jim Steinman and Meatloaf met while while Meatloaf was um, involved in, in musical theater. Meatloaf was... Uh, You know, his name really is like Meatloaf. I mean, he was born Marvin Lee Ade. However, even when he was a baby, apparently, he came out bright red, and his father convinced the nurses to write Meatloaf... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or meat or something on his the tag on his bed. Marvin Lee, ML, he just kind of became, even as a kid, called Meatloaf. And he was bigger. He weighed like over 200 pounds, quite young. Um, he was made fun of a lot for his weight. And I think the weight is something he always struggled with throughout his life. But, you know, bigger guys like this uh, tend to also be able to belt out bigger voices. And I think that that ended up kind of perhaps some of his physicality really turned out working in his favor in doing these very operatic type songs that he ended up getting well known for and really excelling at. I believe when Jim Steinman was working on a play called More Than You Deserve, Meatloaf was in a touring company for Hair. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
that's how he sort of discovered him and that he he got pretty big uh, after doing hair. He also had a band on his own on the side. But when the two of those guys got together, they started working on Bad Out of Hell almost at the same time. And when they released that album, it just, it was a popular success. And much like these popular albums that just go down in history, the critics hated it. (laughs) Critics said it was too over the top. It's too cheesy. It's too goofy. But nevertheless, it really resonated with the public and became a signature style for him. And Jim Steinman wrote the songs. Meatloaf did the thing. Meatloaf went on around this very same time to be in Rocky Horror Picture Show which I guess we could have easily done for this podcast as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We chose to go with a movie a little more recently, 2014's Stage Fright, which is a horror musical. Uh-huh. And this was recommended to us by a couple people, I believe. Of course, when we heard Meatloaf died, we instantly went to see if he was in a, in a horror movie besides Rocky Horror. And um, this came up. And I'll have to say that... After reading the little quick synopsis on IMDb, I was like, Craig, we, we got to do this <laughs> because it just sounds hilarious. A snobby musical theater camp is terrorized by a bloodthirsty killer who hates musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> it just it sounds so delicious. And Craig and I are both fans of musical theater. Craig and I have work together in musical theater productions and so i just knew this would be the perfect one for us to do he's got a pretty big part and uh it's directed by a guy named jerome sable who wrote and directed it and this is almost pretty much the only thing he's done he's done uh he did a short before this and i think he might be working on something now but uh yeah it's an interesting project i'd never heard of this before at all uh certainly had never been on my radar Uh, how about you craig uh, I had heard of it, and I had seen the poster, and I knew that Meatloaf was in it, and I knew that it was a musical. I I don't know why I never got around to watching it, because I hadn't seen it before we decided to do it. And uh, another reason that I'm surprised I haven't seen it is because I really am a Meatloaf fan. Like, um, Bad Out of Hell was a huge enormous part of the soundtrack of my childhood Mm. my parents my aunts and uncles loved it i mean it was playing all the time reading about the guy today i was surprised that that was so so successful and then he pretty much went largely ignored in the united states like throughout all of the 80s like he was still releasing albums but they weren't charting in the states Mm -hmm. they were doing well in europe and in asia but uh, not here and he even had a a huge hit i think in europe a duet with Cher that didn't even get airtime in the united states which i don't really understand those are two iconic performers i don't know how that went ignored but his big comeback with Bad Out of Hell 2, I think when we were in high school, yep. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And I remember that the song was great. The music video was cinematic. It was like this huge Beauty and the Beast thing. Like, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it it's was really crazy. good and it was really cool. You know, the guy had some, I don't know if you want to call him political, it's not necessarily political, but he had some stances that I don't necessarily agree with. He he was a climate denier, and he had kind of an anti-vax 
stance or whatever. These are things I'm not thrilled about, but whatever. You can't deny that he just had an amazing talent. Um, And I can attest to that because when I was in college, we used to do karaoke all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Local bars did karaoke and we were there, you know, at least once a week through most of college. And girls would always ask me to sing Paradise by the Dashboard Light with them. And I love that song. And uh, I would get up on stage with these girls and I would start singing and I'd get about halfway through and I'd be like, Every t- like every time I'd be like, oh my god, I forgot. This is a fucking hard song. <laughs> you get into the last part, and I'm screaming my head off. I mean, most of his tunes, really, if you're gonna oh, try gosh. to sing along. You, you got to have a range. Yeah, he has a huge, amazing range and a huge top range. Mm-hmm. You, you'd, you'd look at this guy and you'd think he's probably a bass. He's this big, masculine guy. And he had this amazing tenor um, that's, cool. that's difficult to replicate. And, uh, you know, even in Rocky Horror, his song, Hot Patootie, that's, that, that song is high. Yeah. And he nailed it, and he's great in that movie. And you're right, we could have done that movie. It, it just seemed too obvious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> too obvious for us. And, you know, I think of him almost like an opera singer. I think yeah. his music was very operatic. Uh, Jim Steinman described it as Wagnerian rock. That was kind of what he was going for. And he also had a very theatrical approach to the music itself it is bombastic it's operatic it's big it's it's loud and but it's it's also uh, you know goes in different places highly emotional and clever even in the lyrics but um just like you mentioned this this epic music video which is like beauty and the beast and the song also what lasts like 10 minutes or something oh yeah for for all you know if anything you can do for love i won't do that uh i was reading that an interview with the director, writer, director, and producer of this film, Stage Fright, who talked about meeting Meatloaf for the first time. And he said that you would think that, you know, we, he said there was a piano in there. We had some, brought some songs, you know, f- and all that. And we did end up going through a little bit. But he said, you would think that we just sat down in there and planned out, okay, well, we're going to play this and we're going to sing this and you're going to sing that. But no, he said, first and foremost, he was interested in the character. Mm-hmm. He wanted to know who is this guy. What's it, what's the emotional aspect of it? And it just makes sense because uh, he said, you know, this is how he approached his music was very theatrically. Um, what is the emotional content behind the songs? And and you know, not can I hit the notes, but what do I need to do to bring that that power to it? And it it shows. I think this was part of the critics' problem. They said this is too much. It's like music, the musical theater of the rock world. You know, uh-huh. we're all just going to kind of chuckle at it and laugh at it, put our noses up at it. But you guys are being are being totally cheesy. But we loved it. It resonated with the public. I mean, gosh, I don't know anybody who doesn't like those songs. They're just really good. And and he was a fine actor, too. I mean, he didn't have an expansive acting career, but he was in quite a few movies and um, some some memorable stuff. Uh, One of the ones that stands out for me was his role in Fight Club. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. He played this um, older heavy set man like the gag was kind of that he had these big man boobs but you know he played kind of this sad sack but then through fight club he found his 
confidence and and all that stuff and small role but he did a good job in it and i do i i think that he was a theatrical person like you said he started out in musical theater i i thought it was funny i just read today that he he did hair and then he was working on some other production when he was scouted for the role in uh, Rocky Horror, and uh, he went and he was doing all of the rehearsals, but the he didn't know how sexual it was in nature until Tim Curry arrived uh, on set in full costume and <laughs> and did Sweet Transvestite, and when he saw that, he wanted to pull out. He wanted to drop out of the production. He thought it was too scandalous or something i don't know but the director talked him in and and i think we're talking about the show i don't think we're talking about the movie at this point that correct uh, yeah he did the show first right but uh the the director convinced him he said just wait until opening night just just do opening night and let's see what happens and the crowd just went absolutely wild and and seeing their reaction convinced him to stay and then of course he reprised the role in the film and that that movie is iconic in its own right but this movie you know i don't know what to say about this movie yeah uh, we joked uh when when we were talking about doing it that this will only be the second horror musical comedy that we've ever done uh the right. first one the first one being anna in the in the apocalypse which both of us really enjoyed i i didn't know what to i had no idea i had never seen a trailer i knew nothing about this i didn't know what the tone was gonna be and then i started watching it and and it's also funny because Minnie driver is in this movie and she's given top billing mm-hmm. and she's in like the first five minutes <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a fake out like at the beginning of scream with, yeah it's uh, with, the drew barrymore moment mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> right i was a little disappointed by that i was really hoping to see a lot of mini driver in this because i, I seen was her in too ages. i was too but i and she doesn't age this woman no, my god she's and she's brilliantly talented as well uh it opened up i mean i i kind of knew right from the beginning <laughs> that we were getting into something we were getting into something when the, there was a, a scroll at the beginning that um, the following film is based on true events. Out of respect for the family and friends of the victims, names have been changed, but the musical numbers will be performed exactly as they occurred. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty hilarious. Yeah, that was funny. And it starts... Uh, on what looks like a stage or kind of backstage and there's this guy in a tux and there's this masked killer like in the shadows and he stabs the guy but then it turns out that this is all a theatrical production it's an opera and Kylie Swanson played by Minnie Driver is the ingenue and she's starring and she sings this big aria and her two young children are watching from the wings with Meatloaf. His character's name is uh, Roger McCall, and he is the producer of the show, I think. Yeah. But I think it's also suggested that he's also Kylie's boyfriend? Either boyfriend or husband? Yeah. Something. But anyway, after the show, it's a huge success. You know, uh, the audience loves it and she kind of talks to her kids after a little bit she she autographs uh, a photograph 
for her daughter and she writes some cheesy thing on it. I don't know, like all life's a song, so sing or something. I don't know. The girl sings that line several times. Mm-hmm. But then the the daughter, Camilla, wanders out on stage and is kind of singing on her own, but she sees a masked figure in the balcony. And then it cuts to black and we go back into Kylie's dressing room and that masked figure comes up behind her and she's talking to him as though she thinks it is a lover and she's like, oh no, we can't do this here. But he's like caressing her and then he stabs her in the throat and in the mouth and it's brutal. It's the, horrible. The, the <laughs> violence and gore in this movie, this ends up being a, a cheesy movie, but... The violence and gore in this movie are intense and definitely qualify it as a horror movie. Yeah. It's a real interesting tonal choice. I read that Minnie Driver, when she was doing ADR for this, which is, you know, just kind of dubbing uh, for that particular scene and they were doing extra sounds, she couldn't watch it because it was so violent. Even though she did... She did the stunt work there, like she was wearing yeah. the appliances and all that. She couldn't actually watch it because it was so, it was so violent. It is very violent, very bloody, and to see somebody stabbed in the throat and through the mouth with a giant oh. kitchen knife, very visceral and upsetting. Brutal. The thing I didn't know this until after I had watched the movie because I didn't read anything about it beforehand because I didn't want anything to be spoiled. But something that I was really impressed by this is a full blown musical with lots of singing, and Minnie Driver sings this aria in the beginning that's very high. It's very operatic, mm-hmm. and I read that the performers all did all of their singing live. It's crazy, and that that is crazy. Like that's that's virtually unheard of. You always record the singing and then lip sync the product you know the the filming i mean that's pretty standard mm-hmm. for all of them to have been singing live that in and of itself is impressive and i don't know i i was asking myself did i know that mini drivers sang i don't know if i did or not like somewhere in the back of my head like i feel like i knew that but it was impressive she's gorgeous she had a lovely voice she's killed off right there in the beginning well and she was in the um she was in the film version of Phantom of the Opera. Oh, that's right. That's right. She yeah. played Carlotta, Correct. who who was um, like the main diva that the main girl ends up replacing, the one that the Phantom wants to perform the diva role. Uh, correct. Correct. And this this musical that she within the movie that she's singing is called "The Haunting of the." Of the of the uh, opera or the haunting of the theater, right? Something like the that. The haunting of the opera, right? And it, it it's very clearly a parody. It, yeah, uh-huh. it, it is Phantom of the Opera, basically. Um, they just don't use Lloyd Webber's. <laughs> you know, they, they they wrote their own their own version of it, but that's very much what it is. They write it similar, like the, it's clearly nodding to it, like similar style, some similar chord patterns. It's kind of cute, actually. How they're trying to mimic it a little bit. It is. It is cute. After that, after the the brutal murder, a teenage Camilla, played by an actress named Allie McDonald, who I don't know and hasn't been in a ton of stuff, but she looks so much like Dakota Johnson that it was just yes. distracting to me the whole time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> she she wakes up in a sweat like she has dreamed 
you know, these events or like they're haunting her or whatever. And we see that it's 10 years later. And then it cuts to a bus full of kids going to the center stage theater camp. And they sing a huge production number. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't even know what to say about it. It's all about like we're we're on our way to where we belong. And it's all about how, you know, they're in, in their regular lives, they're outcasts, but at theater camp, they can be themselves. We're here, we're here, we're here at Santa Stage, the place where we can be ourselves and no one calls us names. They call me weirdo. They call me freak show. They call me sissy. Puffy. Mushy, mushy. Homo. They call me very flitty. Very. Fruity. Lyman. Bitchy. Liberace. And a slew of other low blows. And as cheesy as that is, it's totally true. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these these specialized camps. I always <laughs> I didn't go to a musical theater camp. I went to like a it, it was like a school camp. Like you went and like took classes like i took like science classes oh my god craig how boring (laughs) i know so when i tell people about it i i always say you know in seventh grade when i went to nerd camp (laughs) but that's that's what it was but it was just a bunch of nerds (laughs) and we had a great time (laughs) of course right (laughs) but this no one was giving you wedgies that's why yeah right right But this song is so cheesy and so silly, and there's one point where this guy character sings this big chorus about, (laughs) I'm gay, I'm gay, but not in that way. Musicals move me and touch me in ways I can't say. He's gay, but not in that way. I sleep with women, but musicals make me feel gay. It goes on for a while. Like, just even that I'm gay part, and, like, all the kids are all singing, like, we're all gay in different ways. (laughs) So, oh, it was, like, up until that point, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really cheesy. I don't know. And then when it hit that part, I'm like, okay, like, they are clearly going for the cheesy. And so if I, you know... I'm just going to go ahead and get on board with it (laughs) and enjoy it for what it is. And ultimately, I did. It's really silly. And I have to say, I was talking, you know, last night about it to my partner last night. And I I just said, you know, my my biggest complaint about the movie, I, I don't mind at all that it's a musical. I really enjoy musicals. I just didn't really find the songs all that good. No. Agreed. You know, when we did when we did Anna and the Apocalypse <laughs> There's some really good songs. Right after we were done, I downloaded that soundtrack, like I listened to it. Like there's really, really catchy numbers in that movie. Th- these are more like book numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not really like breakaway pop hits. <laughs> I also felt like um the staging was not very inspired most of the time either. You know, I don't know. I think- it was fun. You know, in this big one, this big number, and especially since it's a lot of kids. Kids. It's the best. Yeah. It's the best. And, and you know, different types of kids. Older kids, younger kids. And, and you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I was going to say all types of kids, but I don't really remember any brown kids. <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. There were a couple Asian kids. It was in a there. very white production. Very white. Yeah. 
this uh, it's it's a Canadian production, but you know, just it 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 did it made me think of you know I was a theater kid and it was very much a community and a safe space, and so I I related to that and it's cute. Yeah. Um, but Camilla and Buddy are grown up now. The Buddy is the the son. They're twins. Uh, twins. They work in the kitchen. They're the same age as these theater kids, but they don't attend the camp. They work at it because apparently, oh God, I'm just going to call him Meatloaf. Meatloaf runs (laughs) the camp. And I guess that since their mother was killed, he's been raising them, I guess. Yeah, I really... I really think maybe he was married to her, but but they're not his kids because they make a point of saying, remember, right. he's not our dad. Yeah, she asks him what this year's show is going to be, and he kind of brushes it off and just says, uh, it's going to be a knockout. Broadway agents, Broadway scouts. We're going to be back in New York before you know it. What is it? Your mother. God bless her. Would be proud. Artie is going to be the director. I guess Artie is like a senior camper or something. He's played by a guy named Brandon Uranowitz. Um, he he's he's stereotypical, kind of full of himself, skeevy theater director. Very skeevy. But they announced that the show that they're going to be doing is the Haunting of the Opera. It's the it'll be it will premiere on the ten year anniversary of its world premiere which is when their mother died. But Artie's like, this is a show about concealing yourself, and so I'm going to make this... (laughs) I don't remember. It's so cheesy. Like, I'm going to conceal the show. So one of my favorite (laughs) lines is is like, it's about covering. Covering up who you really are. And isn't that the scariest thing of all? That's why I'm going to reinvent this entire production and cover it with a postmodern face. Now, who can tell me what Japanese tradition involves covering your face all in white? Bukaki. (laughs) (laughs) And somebody else is like, Kabuki. (laughs) So they're going to do this show, but they're going to do it in Kabuki, which is also hilarious because they couldn't be more white. And the the final production couldn't be more (laughs) like... It's just ridiculously oriental, like, um, appropriation, I guess you could say. Oh, like, yeah. It's like a mixture. Yeah. I mean, the make, like, the makeup looks good, but y- you're looking at it like, you shouldn't be doing no. this. No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> this, big, this big pagoda on the stage and this font across it that's that old, like, 1950s-style oriental font, you know? That's, I mean, it's just bad, but... But I guess that's part of the joke. Yeah, I guess. But Camilla, Camilla, she, everybody calls her Cam, so I'm going to start calling her Cam. Cam decides that she wants to audition. Meanwhile, we see that apparently the killer or a killer is there at the camp. He's like living behind the walls. He has yeah. like this lair with all of the kids' headshots on the wall, and he's just angry all the time. And he's like <laughs> bitching. He's a rocker killer. Like everybody else is musical theater, and he's like rock and roll. 
He's like, like heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the first thing he says is shut your fucking mouths. <laughs> and then <laughs> running his butcher knife and his blades across the wall like he's just like going crazy. I was like it's it's yeah. Does this guy live there all year long? <laughs> well, has, and has he been there for the last 10 years? Right. I was like, what? What's going on? What is happening? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so Cam goes to the audition, but she's not really allowed because she doesn't really go to the camp. She just works there. So the boy who's like letting people into the auditions, his name is Joel. And he obviously has a crush on her and she convinces him to let her audition and she's like, I'll owe you a favor later. Okay. Gets him excited. So he lets her. <laughs> and and he watches her from the flies, like from the catwalk. And and we get like his point of view, which is kind of leering and, and very much like the killer's point of view. Pretty creepy. So, so right away, he's on your list of suspects and also every now and then the creepy gardener right the stereotypical creepy gardener who you know the creepy gardener or like maintenance guy or whatever who there are tons of of slasher film references references and and this guy is freddy krueger i mean there's there's one point where he's sweeping the stage with you know a, a big broom and like looking to the side it, it looks exactly like uh robert england or even wes craven you know as as freddy krueger is sweeping yeah um and his name is higgins that's my name too oh, how nice <laughs> <laughs> And so she does audition, and she gets the part, but she's double cast with this girl named Liz, who is like the theater ingenue who everybody expected to get the part. After she gets the part, she comes back to her locker in the kitchen, and somebody has vandalized the picture of her mom, which makes her sad. And, oh, man, I don't know. You know, we find out that the camp is going into foreclosure, like Meatloaf is dealing with that we see several scenes of him trying to get a Broadway producer on the phone. Like he, apparently he has this connection to this guy from back in the day, but he's having a really hard time getting a hold of him. He just keeps getting brushed off, even though he's already told all the campers, this guy's coming. He's a Broadway producer. He's going to be here to scout. And uh, yeah, so then we just jump into the making of the play and Artie, the skeevy director immediately puts the move on cam and she rebuffs but it becomes this cat and mouse thing where she keeps asking him who is going to get to play the role since it's double cast who's going to get to play the role on opening night because that's the night that the broadway guy is going to be there and it's obvious that the ultimatum is it can be you but you're going to have to me yeah (laughs) and like that's that it plays out for a long time. It's really gross. It is disgusting. And I feel like she flirts with him and she kisses him, hoping that'll be enough. That it will be enough. Yeah. And it never is. And there's there's one point where I thought that she was gonna do it. And I was like, this is gross. Yeah. Like Let's not even make this happen in this movie. It's gross. But at the last minute, you know, after she's already taken her top off and he's on top, at, at the last minute, she she doesn't do it. Yeah. But uh, there's, there's, I don't know, a good 15, 20 minutes where we just see 
the the, the rehearsal process preparation for the show yeah, yeah. the rehearsal pro- build you know ma- building the set making the costumes testing the makeup rehearsing and i don't know i mean if you're a theater kid as i am as you are it was fun yeah but well know, not a whole whole lot happens they kind of foreshadow a bunch of stuff there's the ghost light on the stage which is the Sort of traditional um, little lamp, just a little light bulb on a stand that uh, you're supposed to leave on at all times to chase the the ghosts of the theater away or whatever. They've got that out there. There's a kid with a skill saw, which I noticed they had modified the the logo on skill saw. They took the S off. It just said kill saw. <laughs> Did you notice that? Oh, that's funny. No, but was he the kid? Was it like a, a like a circular saw, yeah, and he yeah. like rears it up like Leatherface? <laughs> that was hilarious. There's there's also the the um, costume girl. Her pin cushion is a wig form, mm-hmm. so it looks like Pinhead. <laughs> yeah, she's got pins all over it. It's so cool. <laughs> I liked that. I, I I liked those little throwbacks. Yeah, I think the the deaths start happening. Um, about the time the cam rebuffs Artie uh, that last moment. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, right. Artie kind of wanders out and uh, uh, he's kind of out on the stage in darkness and he hears a noise or something, I don't know, and goes out to, to investigate and he's by that light. And then uh, the suddenly looks up and these lights, stage lights, start falling on him. That is a real danger. This, I, mean, I know. You... I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> like, I think that casual viewers wouldn't know how scary that is. Those things will kill you. Yeah, they're like, heavy as hell. And they're hanging above you all the time, just clamped on there. And uh, and they, they start falling down on him, and he's kind of dodging them. But one of them catches his foot. And in a very highly improbable way, somehow uh-huh. it pins him to the stage floor. Yeah, one of the clamps like goes all the way through his foot, like through his shoe, through his foot, and like pins him. Yeah. Which... I don't think that would probably happen. Th- those clamps aren't sharp. No. No, and you can just tell <laughs> whatever. the way it was. Like, yeah, it's not going to happen. Anyway, he's trying to get it off because the, the killer in the mask and the robe, uh, just like from the, the show, the Kabuki mask, is coming towards him. And he's very, I don't know what you say, like Freddy Krueger in his way. Like, he talks to these guys and he taunts them as he's, he's got witty catchphrases, he says, as he's coming at them. And uh, the kid can't ever get it off, but the killer just goes goes over to him and he starts pushing him backwards which makes his foot basically snap in half Break also improbably mm. but whatever it tears his foot off but then he kind of swings something around and whacks the killer and you sort of think he's knocked out he crawls towards this big box that's marked swords that we see on the stage <laughs> there's even a little glint like an animated ding glint that comes off of it like this is his precious treasure and he runs over and opens the box, but he doesn't do it in time. Uh, and he swings around, and uh, the killer grabs him, and also improbably, but whatever, just basically pries open his mouth and puts it over the light bulb on that stand and turns the bulb on, which I guess in some way sort of fries him on yeah, the Yeah, electrocutes him. Yeah. And then the killer screams like a rock star, and Cam wakes up in a sweat again, which we have seen before. I, I do want to take a second. You know, in the original production, it just looks very much like Phantom of the Opera, and the the Phantom or Ghost or whatever you want to call him was just wearing a white mask. For their Kabuki production, they've altered the mask and and you know made it like a Kabuki mask, but it looks really good. Mm-hmm. 
And the jaw moves. That's cool. It's pretty, it's pretty menacing. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know, for a masked killer, it looks pretty good. It really I mean, does. The movie's, not, the movie's not particularly scary. You know what's going to happen. You know people are going to get picked off. And it is a mystery. Like, I didn't know who the killer was. Like, I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, who could it possibly be? Like, oh, really? I, I, it's funny that you say that because I went back and I read reviews. By the way, this movie does not is not reviewed well. <laughs> the reviews uh, range from like mildly warm to to very cold. Um, but in the reviews, I was like, "Oh, you can see who the killer is a mile away." I had no idea. Really, I was surprised. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was just really a quite an easy process of elimination, like motivation and who you know it's not going to be. Well, you know it's not going to be the creepy kid who's been leering on her. Right. You know it's not going to be the gardener. You know right. those two folks are obvious. Like who's left? Who who would want to run around and kill people who's not getting killed? And I thought, well, I could only think of one person. Um, that's what it sort of turned out to be but they do in in hindsight that makes perfect sense but it just never occurred to me Mm. and and really looking back I'm like well you're an idiot like (laughs) (laughs) you should have been able to figure that out but I didn't that's how it's supposed to be right yeah if you look back and said oh that's BS then they didn't do a good job (laughs) the camp is all abuzz the next morning and and Joel who's crushing on Cam asks her if she thinks it's connected to her mom Um, but at the same time Roger Meatloaf finally gets a call back from this producer who agrees to come so he wants to keep everything quiet he doesn't even want to report the death because it's opening night well i was just gonna say maybe you're gonna say this but like he runs out and does a whole musical number where he has to con- yes convince all of the, the entire camp just hold off on another day because i just got i just got it's the- meatloaf's big number right <laughs> when the enemy's on its way This girl who can't be more than like seven is in the crowd, like the crowd parts, and she's like, isn't it wrong to sing and dance when someone just died? (laughs) (laughs) And then Meatloaf sings a very inspirational song about theater like getting them through the hard times and like (laughs) no matter how bad a day you've had when you come out of that musical performance you feel okay (laughs) 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 and he gets them all you know excited but buddy cam's brother he wants her to quit he's like this is dangerous you know look what happened to mom you and me let's just leave and and she agrees, but she goes to tell Meatloaf that she's going to be leaving, and uh, he kind of talks her into it. He, he's like, you know, it's it's just one night. Your mother would want you to do it. Um, so she agrees to stay. She tells Buddy, I will leave with you. I just have to do this tonight. Um, Joel, the guy who's crushing on her, asks her not to do it. Um, but the show must go on and the audience <laughs> begins to arrive. And then a metal guy gets his song. It's, it's not a long song, but he's back in the shadows. And I think, 
I'm pretty sure the title of his song is Shut Your F***ing Face. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Your musicals are such shit. His songs and his bits when he comes in are very much like, uh, they're basically like death metal, heavy metal, death metal, kind of growling, you know. Screaming. Screaming type stuff. Very much in contrast to everything else, which is very, you know, musical theater, Sondheim, Andrew Lloyd Webber type material. He has uh, electric guitar solos. He, he <laughs> reminded me of the killer from Slumber Party Massacre 2, just in that way. Mm. Like, like I'm a I'm a serious rocker. <laughs> Definitely more menacing than that guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, that's true. But you don't see him very much no. until the end. In the end, you he's more present. Well, that's part of the. That's part of what makes the movie not really scary, right? It's, it's, there's not a lot of stalking going on. It's just sort mm-hmm. of, uh, um, you know, plot, very plot-driven. This, this person's going to die. This person's going to die. This person's going to die. Like you said, you, you see it coming. You know it's going to happen. Uh, but it's brutal, though. Man, it's brutal. Yeah, and there, there are funny theater gags. Like, you know, this one girl is giving Cam all of these tips on, like, warming up your voice, and they're all the stereotypical things that th- we theater people really do. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> people, out, people outside of the theater world, if they knew what was going on behind the scenes, they would probably... Give us what He's scratching their heads, yeah. like, what? Like, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just weird. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so the show starts, and and there's a, a cute moment where <laughs> straight Sam, who is playing the masked killer, goes out and does his first uh, number, and when he comes back, he's like so pumped after his number that he kisses David, the stage manager, and I was like, "Aw, <laughs> young gay love, that's sweet." Yeah. Um, then he does. Uh, I have in my no- I'm just going through my notes. Uh, my my next note is Cam's costume is very titty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they knew was... the. They really took the um, Jim Wynorski uh, thing to heart. That breasts are the best special effects you can have. Cheapest breasts are the cheapest special effects you have. Yeah, I thought she was going to fall out of it. Afraid she was going to fall right out. Right, <laughs> but she doesn't. She's fine. Um, <clears throat> we see somebody pouring red paint in a bucket. For some reason, this <laughs> killed me. Like she picks up a paint bucket with a handle <laughs> and pours it into a different bucket with, with a handle. handle. to set it up carry style and like they do the killer pov thing so you're kind of you kind of think it's the killer but i was like why would the killer do that like the killer's just gonna kill them well it's not the killer it's liz trying to the other girl the other right and she sets it up but then it doesn't happen um and then Gosh, what happens? The uh... I guess Liz gets killed, right? Or no, 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 no. Liz, no, Liz, Liz gets, doesn't get killed. Gets pulled aside. Sam. Sam, Sam goes back. Goes backstage, right? And he finds the costumer dead, and her head is full of nails, um, like somebody has killed her with a nail gun. And the killer grabs him from the back and is and screams, "Nailed it!" <laughs> <laughs> and then stabs Sam to death brutally. Yeah. Everything is just absolutely brutally brutal. God. Um because he's dead, 
Sam misses his next stage cue, which is supposed to be like the big finale aria. And so Cam like scoots her way off stage. (laughs) And then I didn't know what was happening, but somebody in the killer mask stumbles on stage and is just kind of stumbling around. And I could it I could kind of tell that it seemed like they were bound. Like that's what like like their arms were bound mm-hmm. and they were just kind of randomly stumbling around. But this just ends up ultimately being, you know, Cam finds Sam. And then gosh, what happens? David, the stage manager who has said that he'll never go on stage because he has stage fright, he has to go on stage to try to cover keep the show going. There's another murder. The warm-up girl gets killed in the shower. Like she like it's not a shower scene. She just turns on the shower to steam the room for her voice and then I guess yeah. it's hot enough to kill her. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Uh, let me turn up the and heat for you. Let me warm you yeah. up is what he says. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Cam finds her um gosh uh, the killer. Oh, so then the killer gets Roger. He knocks Roger out and he ties him up, and then he sings them and has a guitar solo. And then Cam shows up and confronts the killer. This is all in the kitchen. The killer is singing to Roger and is getting ready to kill him. But then Cam shows up and confronts him and immediately takes off his mask, and the killer is revealed. Yeah. And again, yeah, I was shocked. It's Buddy. It's her brother. Now, I didn't want to spoil that earlier, even though that was just five minutes ago. But I was surprised, and I think that the reason I was surprised... Now, it should have been a tip-off that Buddy hadn't been around very much. Not at all. Like, they're twins, and they work together, and they were both there in the beginning scene. But once she gets involved with the musical... He pops in every once in a while, but not very much. And that should have been a clue. I think the other reason that I didn't suspect him is because this boy man, young man, is is very handsome and, like, sweet looking. Like, he's got these baby blue eyes. And curls and stuff. Curls, yeah. And ultimately, his story is kind of tragic it's sad i I mean he's a brutal killer but i felt bad for him (laughs) yeah i mean i did too i felt well anyway yeah i did feel bad for him but i also thought all of it was kind of unrealistic buddy tells uh cam you know he monologues basically this is why i'm doing this uh and he says that roger killed our mother i saw it happen so it turns out while Cam had, as a girl, wandered out onto the stage that night that her mom was murdered, um, Buddy was in the room, like back in the closet. She, he saw the, the murder happen, and then Roger takes off his mask and uh, <clears throat> lays her down, and then Roger notices him, and Roger's way of dealing with the situation is just to scare him. Mm-hmm. Don't you ever tell anybody this, or I'm going to get you, and, and he slaps him across the face a couple times, but... I don't know. I mean, for this kid to keep that a secret this long, just so that uh-huh. later on he can go and murder a whole bunch of people plus him, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, right? She, right? Because she asked Cam, Cam asks him, "Why didn't you ever tell me?" And he said, "Because I was scared." 
And I, you know, okay, I get it. You know, especially, you know, as a kid, that would be terribly traumatic. But uh, I don't know. I mean, this this is par for the course for slasher films. Yeah. You know, a little kid watches their parent it's get true. brutally killed and then they become a killer themselves. They, they com- com- immediately snap, you know. I just posted uh-huh. this thing on our page about the... the what is it that psychologists look at a lot of villains from horror movies and we're rating them as far as like what are more true uh, portrayals of psych- psychopathy. And one of the things that they mentioned in that article is this is definitely not it. <laughs> uh. Psychopaths are generally very cool, calm, collected, almost emotionally detached from what they're doing and rational rationalize this whole thing. Kind of like Charles Manson, really. And uh, in this case, this guy just goes completely off the wall. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's just like, he's got all these ticks and he's flailing around and he's he's uh, he's like a whole different person now that he's been unmasked as the killer which again is not uncommon for these movies 100 you know, percent, the, yeah. right these these killers seem totally fine until they're revealed and then they're just 100 percent off their rocker but yeah. um he after cam or after buddy explains all that to cam he goes to kill roger but roger fights back and there's a big fight in the kitchen and in the fight buddy like pulls back to hit roger but in pulling back he accidentally hits cam and realizes it so he turns around to make sure that she's okay because he didn't mean to hurt her and while he is distracted roger stabs him and gets him down on the ground and just stabs him brutally a bunch of times and again i i felt bad you know you see this kid's face he's a kid i mean he's he's tall you know he's a young man but just these innocent eyes and i just I felt bad for him. You know, I, I somehow wanted him to be okay, but, I mean, I guess he'd killed too many people for <laughs> redemption, whatever. Right. But Roger's kind of the so ultimate So he's villain, dead. You know. Yeah, he is. Ultimately, he is. And he chases Cam through the woods, <laughs> randomly. Um, and they, you know, we find out that the, the person in the, the killer's mask on stage was Liz, I guess, Buddy had tied her up and pushed her out on stage for unknown reasons um and uh david like when they goof around on stage for a while then they end up off stage and he pulls the mask off of her and it's when he realizes it's her he pushes her back on stage and says just sing the aria like just finish the show (laughs) and she goes out and she starts singing it that he comes out and starts singing with her and like takes center stage like he's found his diva moment um and roger catches cam somehow they end up backstage again and he's trying to reassure her like i'm not gonna hurt you i'm not gonna hurt my little broadway star but when she doesn't submit he's like you're just like your goddamn mother um and so she she grabs a circular saw and she goes to saw him with it, but it's unplugged. But then the guy, Joel, who has a crush on her, shows up and plugs it in. And so she saws him um, and, and, and kills him. Um, and somehow, in, in all this commotion, the bucket of paint gets dropped on Liz. And then Cam somehow stumbles on stage. Liz falls into her arms. And so they're just sitting there, both of them looking 
absolutely awful. And the janitor stands up and starts a slow clap, which leads to a standing ovation from the audience. Like, this was the end of the show. And, like, they're so <laughs> impressed. Was, was, and the producer is impressed. He's impressed. I don't know why. <laughs> but he I don't either. <laughs> and then it cuts to black. Yep. Um, and then it opens up, and I don't remember if it says how much longer, how much later it is, but it's the opening night of the Broadway revival of The Haunting of the Opera. And why in the world and, would uh, she want to participate in this <laughs> again? I don't know. Well, it's because she's going to be famous, Todd. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you pretty much do anything to be famous. Um <laughs> Uh, outside, there's like entertainment reporters, and the main one is played by Dan Levy. Yeah. This would have been before all of his success, but I recognized him right away. I was like, woohoo! Because he's hilarious. I love him. <laughs> um, and then Cam is in her dressing room, and she's kind of looking around like she's nervous, and then the killer breaks through the mirror and jumps at her, but then she like jump starts awake. I mean, she wasn't asleep, but it's like she imagined it. And then you just hear somebody from off screen yell places, and then it cuts to black again. It's like and a that's the end. Phantasm ending or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of weird. And I expected there to be, I just had this feeling that there would be a post credit scene, and there's not really. But if you stick around until the very end, you hear the the metal killer sing something i couldn't make it out did you listen to it oh, it was it was crazy i mean it was it was all over the place it was um it was basically a revival of all of the songs in the musical except in his metal form uh and then towards the end he was like why are you still here you're watching the movie uh how did you get this movie i hope you didn't pirate it pirating's wrong <laughs> <laughs> It's, oh, they man. had a lot of fun with it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, th that's the thing. Like, it is what it is. Did I love it? No. I, I will say that from a filmmaking perspective, it looks good. Oh, it looks great. Like, uh, looks yeah, great. It, it's it's well made. And all as far as the cinematography is concerned, it looks really good. It's cheesy, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, like. To each their own. The comedy didn't really land for me. I didn't think it was awful. And I definitely laughed out loud at some parts. But those parts that I laughed at, I laughed at because they were so stupid. Yeah. But I felt like they knew what they were doing. Well, they did. They knew it was stupid. They were going for cheesy and stupid. But right. the comedy still has to land, right? Or else it just still feels yeah. a little lame. And I was just sitting trying to think of why didn't I really... Like, it had all the elements. I, mean, I just kept comparing. Like, I walked away from Anne and the Apocalypse with a big smile on my face, you know? Yeah, yeah. And this one, I was just like, eh. And I was trying to figure out why. And I think it was a couple things. Like you said, the comedy just didn't really land. I liked what they were going for. And there were some chuckling. There were even some laugh-out-loud moments. I thought that the... I thought that the running gag of the guy who's trying to pretend he's not gay was pretty funny. Uh-huh. And that was about it, I guess, <laughs> you know? The killer was menacing and the, the, the violence and gore. It, it's not just about how much blood there is, but, you know, it's just about how, how violent it is, you know? How, mm -hmm. and, and this movie's really violent in those places, which 
I don't, that's fine. You know, actually, sometimes it's, it, that works to have that sort of, alt, that shift in tone. And I, be, mm-hmm. being a kind of, I mean, just get off my soapbox a little bit here, I sometimes I think that movies don't show violence. If they're going to show violence, like, make it real. Don't, don't mm-hmm. anything less is, runs the risk of glorifying it. You know, you don't want this to look like, you know, you can just stab people left and right and it doesn't really hurt. Like, this is, right. this is good. It's in your face. So I like that. But maybe there, because there was no suspense. Yeah. You know, because like we said before, it's just kind of that, which, which we get with a lot of slasher movies, really. And the fact maybe that I had kind of guessed the killer a little early on, but that wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe it all just kind of came down to they were really going for this musical horror comedy and the music just wasn't that great. Yeah, I have to agree there. And I think that was probably the biggest letdown. And so and none of it was quite good enough to to overcome that for me. So I just kind of and plus some of it was really dumb, like. I think that the bit where they were stumbling around on stage... Oh, it went on for far, far too it long. It went on so long, and it was really stupid, and then the audience's reaction to it, like, at some point, they all start to get up and go, and I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I'd be doing. Like, I would have been mm-hmm. doing that, like, 20 minutes ago. And I right. think that was supposed to be part of the gag, is that you cut back here, and they're still stumbling around on the stage all this time later, but actually... It, it didn't come across that way. It just came across as stupid. So, yeah. Also, the ending kind of baffled me. What was the implication that that critic, Victor or whatever, was he like having some kind of thing with her? When she was performing in the show, he was leering at yes. her lustfully. Yes. And then at the end, it seemed like yeah, he was very friendly with her like i don't know i don't know makes a suggestive remark and gives a wink and stuff almost as though they had this agreement i mean it almost felt back to the director you know yeah earlier that's what it feels like and i was like that's a really weird way to end this i just got icky all over again (laughs) and i couldn't believe Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. girl who'd been through so much is going to be back in this show and she's presumably Screwing this guy who's clearly like twice his a- her age. Right. Well, and there was also somebody mentioned earlier that her mother had a bad reputation. They said that she screwed every producer. It, it, her her nickname was the Great White Lay. Um, so I don't know if they were insinuating that she was kind of following in her mother's footsteps oh, in that it was regard. So yucky. I just. I know this happens. I know it's the, you know, it's the cliche. I mean, not just cliche. We know it's it not as it is cliche. It does happen, but it's not as common as you would think. Yeah. Like there there are skeevy people just as there are in any workplace. Yeah. Um, and there are people who take it there are who take advantage of a power dynamic, but it's not every director, it's not every producer. I've worked with dozens of uh directors all of whom were very fine upstanding people that it's a trope mm-hmm. in cinema and it does happen um, it was just weird but, to see it twice in this movie with the same girl yeah. and especially at the end when everything's supposed to be resolving so yeah i just um you know i didn't think it was horrible definitely not horrible and like you said very well made uh from a from a technical standpoint but uh it didn't really float my boat and i can see why a lot of people just didn't really care for it at all to be honest so yeah i get it i mean i i don't regret watching it i didn't think it was awful i thought it was fine it was kind of fun it was a nice you know little and 
Meatloaf was great in it. Like he clearly had a he does a nice job. His his character he had it nailed. He's this uh, just sort of um, desperate kind of mouse, not mousy, but just sort of desperate guy. And he seemed very natural, very real. He's dynamic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like uh, you know, he he seems I don't know, kind of put upon throughout most of it mm-hmm. but then at the end when his true colors are revealed he's he's menacing yeah and and he he can be and and he's a big guy and uh when he gets aggressive i would be frightened so yeah he does a good job and and i i'm happy to pay tribute to him because he he really was a very very talented artist his you know when the news of his passing came out. Alan and I, over dinner, popped in, bat out of hell. And it had probably been God knows how long since I had actually like sat and listened to that album. You know, you hear the songs here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had been a long time since I had listened to that album. And I just kept saying, God, this is so good. Yeah. You know, the Paradise by the Dashboard Light, Bat Out of Hell... Two out of three ain't bad is uh, such a good song. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we may not have agreed on everything, but uh, I would never, ever challenge him on his talent. And um, it, it's, it's, it's too bad that he's gone. But as we always say in these tributes, how amazing to leave such a legacy. I mean, he'll be, he'll be remembered Far longer than we will. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Yep. Well, rest in peace, Meatloaf. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us online if you just Google two guys and a chainsaw podcast. And just leave us a message with uh, what you thought of this episode, maybe your favorite Meatloaf memory, um, and uh, any requests that you would like us to do in the near future. Just send them to our Twitter feed, or you can post them on our Facebook page, or drop a comment on our website at twoguys.red40net.com. And we'll, we will get to it at some point, usually. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Ah.